Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. In the series, Better Story, um, and I think this is the end of that story. So uh, we're looking at the last part, uh, the aspect of eternity. Um, So this year, I uh, finally decided to, um, after putting it off for about 10 years, a decade, um, to watch the Marvel superhero movies all together, Uh, all of them, there's a lot. Uh, Thanks to Disney Plus, it tells me the order that I need to watch them in, and if you know a bit about me, I have to watch movies in chronological order, there's no other way. Um, So I started with the first Captain America, uh, Captain Marvel, uh, Iron Man, Thor, Iron Man again, Thor again, Avengers, Avengers again, you know, there's a lot. Um, More Captain America, Skip Ant-Man, it looked terrible. Um, And then about 20 or so movies... Later, I was finished, you know, I was at the end of that story. That story began, uh, it got bigger, it got more complicated, you know, there are extraterrestrials, you know, I get more invested, the stakes get higher, and then it ends. And the last movie in the series is even called Endgame, you know, it gives you the impression it's pretty finished, it's at the end. It was a good ending, I must say. It was a bit bittersweet. I won't spoil it. Um, There's a lot of loose endings tied up. You know, the main villain does go. Um, And there were some losses. (laughs) It has to happen, right? Uh, What's an ending without the villain going? Um, There were some losses, but you get the sense that as the story goes, um, it probably should stop there. Except it's not, right? (laughs) When has a film producer in Hollywood ever got a right about when to stop a film franchise? You know, there are way too many movies and sequels out there that just should never have been made, right? Agree? Yeah. You know, I honestly can't think of any movie sequel that's been better than the original. I'll take up some ideas if you got any, but, you know, they still make them. And we still rock up to watch them because there's money So the money still rolls in, so why not? They keep making them. And so the last couple of months, I think Marvel released a few new items out there. Uh, So there's now a whole schedule of new movies and new TV series coming out after Endgame. Um, So Endgame isn't Endgame. Or maybe Endgame ends something and something new begins. It's a new villain, a new evil. Who knows? It's it's very confusing. and, and for most people who've watched the original stuff, you know, the new stuff's just not going to be as good, right? No way, Jose, it's no good. But, you know, the favourite characters are gone. Some of them have, you know, died. Some of them have retired. I'll complain. I'll sit in my armchair watching it and criticise. But you know what? I'll keep watching them, right? I'll still turn my Disney Plus on and watch them every Wednesday or whatever it is when they renew those episodes. And I, 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 want an, I wanted an ending, but I also didn't want it to end right there. Um, I, I wanted to know that there is an end, that things work out well and work out, work out and, and work out well. But I also want to know that it keeps going, right? That there is newness beyond the end. Um, I think that's our love-hate relationship with endings. You know, we want to know where a story is heading, 
I know some people that say that when they read a book, um, they read, you know, a bit of the beginning to get to know the main characters in the plot, and they skip to the end. Now, they read the ending, and and they want to know that if the ending is a likable one or not, so that they will go and read the rest of that story, Um, you know, and go back. Otherwise, they'll ditch the book. You know, I don't like the ending. Ditch it right there. I mean, it must be a terribly efficient way to read, so it's probably a good thing. Maybe I should pick that up. You know, my mum, she's really into her Korean drama. It's an Asian thing, I think. Um, you know, so she will uh, start the series and skip the three million episodes and go right to the end. And if she likes it, she'll go back and watch the rest of the three million episodes on double speed. <laughs> you know, we want to know if the end can justify the means. You know, we're very utilitarian about that, uh, how we invest our resources. And by utilitarian, I mean the idea that we do or don't do something based on the, the end, right? We assess whether the end justify the means or if the benefit at the end outweigh that cost. You know, we want an ending that deserves our investment because I think whether we're Christian or not, uh, those of us living in the West, we've really largely forsaken the idea of infinity, of eternity, of a great beyond. You know, instead, we're all about scarcity. We're all about competition. We're all about survival of the fittest in a hostile environment uh, of rational self-interest. You know, what I invest here, I won't have to invest there. And I think that's why there's probably these days a lot of pull factor uh, in the West to look into New Age religions. Uh, And honestly, New Age religions to me seems to be just westernised Eastern religions. You know, where where I used to come from, you know, you get a bit of Buddhism, you get a bit of Tao, a bit of Hinduism. um, Because in most Eastern cultures, uh, and probably a lot of indigenous cultures out there in the world, um, the afterlife is not a fantasy. That that reality uh, is there, it's real. The spiritual and material worlds aren't separate things. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, Most of my relatives back in China, um, you know, they still believe in something beyond this life. They have no idea what it is, um, but they still burn incense, you know, at the right time to the dead. They're superstitious about what to say at what time and observing certain omens. And, and, and this is them living under communist rule since 1949. And, and that communist rule requires a totally materialistic worldview. Um, so we want to know where a story, well, that the story has an ending, but we don't quite know what it means, I think, for an ending to be an eternal, infinite one. You know, as Christians in the West, we've largely failed at helping our secular neighbours reimagine what the end looks like. You know, instead, I think we've mostly bought into the secular version of ends. You know, what the secular culture have sold to us. You know, they, they might be conservative ends, you know, serving our country, providing for family. You know, some of those ends are progressive ends on the political spectrum, you know, might be serving social justice, uh, environmentalism, you know, some of the ends are economic, it's accumulation of wealth, you know, some are self-actualizing, you know, to grow and learn, to better myself, but they're all secular ends, and they're all operate within a finite environment. You know, think about how we're being sold, our ideas, and things 
Think about how we're influenced by the consumer culture, um, about how we spend our money and our resources, you know? Let's see if these commercials that I've picked out speak to you. Well, the, the, there's no magic, right? It's, it's all imagined. Um, we imagine it's only technology. You know, there's, there's no you, plural, in this ad. There's only you, singular, right? To you, to thrive, you know, now, to thrive now in this moment. I think the, the philosopher calls this the imminent frame. We all live in this imminent time. Um, whatever magic is out there, it's imagined. It's imaginary. It's not real. Uh, if anyone ever read, I think, the book Sapien by Yuval Harari or um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Buck by uh, Mark Manson, you know, I, I would say that that's basically the conclusion that these guys come up with in those books. There's no eternity unless we create it for ourselves. And the only way we do that is to improve the technology we have. I think that's a tenuous hope, right, at, be at best, to hope that technology will bring us out of whatever uh, trouble we're in. Now, there's also this one. So, you've decided to have a child. One of the biggest financial investments of your life. Expenditure, of course, will begin immediately. Pretty soon, you'll discover a whole new list of everyday costs. Costs like childcare, health, recreation, more food and groceries, bigger energy bills. And that's before the really expensive ones crop up. What if you need a bigger car or a bigger house? And of course, there's always education. And so on average, after 18 years, you'll invest $450,000 on your child with little or no financial return on your investment. Life. It's about more than money. Now. Now, I showed this ad, I think, at my old church, which was a Chinese Methodist church, and um, afterwards they all came up, all these girls came up, I was like, that's a video of my life. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, you know, Viv, my wife, would agree with that too. I think it's all, the, all of the things that she's done growing up um, caught on, on a camera. Um, you know, I figured that I should never trust a bank that's trying to tell me life is about more than money. Um, either they're lying or they're just not serious about their business. You know, I, I think it really reflects our cultural moment because we, we see life and live life uh, in order to create just memories. You know, life is a collection of only memories of the past. It, it might culminate and reach an apogee uh, in, in the present moment, but it cannot offer us a glimpse of the future. It stops at the present. You know? and, and if anything, um, the future is not a personal one. It's at best a derivative one, a future that our children inherit, and that's what it's selling to us, isn't it? They are your future. You know, NAB has clearly caught on to that. Um, these ads, to me, I think represent the best of what today's secular society can offer us in terms of future hope, right? The hope that maybe technology will pull us through and save us from ourselves. Uh, the hope that if we set aside a bit today, it might give us a little bit of security and certainty tomorrow. And the hope that maybe, maybe that we might have just uh, more happy memories than sad ones and, and that one day someone 
uh, who has our genes will remember us fondly as a memory or a legacy. And still, that, that hope is only open, I think, to those in the Western world with the means to buy into those narratives, you know? Uh, the hope is not something that's available to the elderly, to the infirm, to those living in poverty who can't afford the technology or the savings schemes that these ads offer us. What about those people? You know, if these ads speak to us as Christians, you know, if we're watching these and we're nodding, then we've probably forgotten the essential part of what makes the Christian story. You know, the the Christian story is not just a good story. It is the better story. You know, maybe if we're nodding to these ads, we're not quite living as Christians just yet, but really as existentialists. Maybe we need to watch this next video and ask ourselves, is this what I actually believe? I really like this guy's videos. I think he's really eloquent, and uh, I like him because I think he's true to his beliefs. You know, um, if life is finite, uh, then it's all ultimately meaningless, and we can only try to momentarily, like he says, flee the terror um, of the dark night. Everything we do to give us joy, you know, like family, poems, or movies for this guy, you know, it might be for some of us food, you know, nature, culture, the arts, but it's all just narcotics. It's all just a drug. And I think most Christians in the West, we probably don't live any different to that. You know, we live like the song by Nelly Furtado, and all good things come to an end. Um, You know, but the Christian story, the, the biblical story has an ending, and it's a good ending. But that's not what makes it a better story, because a lot of stories have good endings. You know, a lot of religions promise a good ending. The Christian story has a good ending, but it doesn't just end with that ending. You know, there's more to the end than the ending. Again, that's not what makes the story a better story, uh, because a lot of stories, like Fast and Furious, has endings after endings. Um, the, the Christian story has an ending that gets better and better as we go along. You know, if you turn with me to Revelations chapter seven or on your, uh, 21 on your devices, Revelation chapter 21, it's going to be behind as well on the screen. We're going to look at that final piece, I think, of, of this series that makes and tells us why the biblical story is the better story. We're going to look at how it ends or, or how it doesn't end and how that changes everything. Chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself would be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, Last week, Viv and I uh, went to Hamilton Island for a friend's wedding, and kind of out of the blue, I think during the wedding, Viv just turned around and asked me, and she said, "Uh, were you happier on our wedding day or when Alistair, my first uh, son, uh, was born? And my first reaction is, holy crap, this is a loaded question. Um, (laughs) 
you know, I'm going to get it wrong whichever way I go. Um, but, but then I said, ah, look, well, it's probably, and honestly, it probably wasn't when Alistair was born because I was kind of freaking out that day uh, because, you know, they come out screaming and gross and, you know, we, we chose a caesarean birth and so the good part of the first hour in Alistair's life in this world, I was with him screaming in recovery because Viv was still in theatre uh, being patched up and everything. Uh, so I was like, nah, I think it was the wedding day. Um, so which she said, yeah, correct answer. Um, <laughs> You know, that was the day I looked better than everyone in the, in the room. Uh, she's definitely the most beautiful person on earth that day, uh, at least to me. And, and, but I had a bad hair day that day. There's a photo. <laughs> I, I figure since Cirque's put up his wedding photo a few weeks ago, I should put mine up here as well. <laughs> um, heaven and earth is a phrase that um, people in the ancient world like to use, and I think they use it to describe the whole of reality, Um, the earthly one, the material one, the present one, or the heavenly and spiritual one. Um, What we get, though, in Revelation is that there is not really two separate realities um, that that we in the West sort of try to draw a line between, Um, you know, but there is an old one and a new one. You know, the old one is now gone and the new one has come. And if anything in this new one, heaven has come down to earth. Uh, God comes to dwell on earth and and where we may live in the old. um, You know, in the old we might perceive a difference uh, between the material and a spiritual one. There is no longer that difference, I think, that tangible difference in the new heaven and new earth at all. Um, That's where the temporal or the time that we experience meets eternity Um, and where earthly realities and heavenly realities, I think, effectively emerge and it becomes this better reality, a new reality. And there's also beauty in that reality. God doesn't forget to tell us that there is beauty there. I think too often we... Heaven, for me, is portrayed as a really sterile, you know, white and sunny. It's void halfway between uh, land and sky. But the passage here we read goes on to describe that New Jerusalem, uh, well, it it goes on later to describe what New Jerusalem looks like, you know, and it looks like a description by a mineral geologist, you know, there's gold, there's uh, jasper, there's all these stones. Uh, But I think that description is more symbolic, um, And we won't go into that today. Um, But I think it's enough for me to know that the best concept the writer here wants to tell us about what the new reality looks like aesthetically is to compare it with a bride dressed for the wedding. And what that to me, like what my wife said to me, was that this is the day I'm looking my best. This is the day that the new heaven and new earth, our reality is at its very best. Now, it's important, I think, for us to appreciate that the ending that we have as a Christian story is not just good uh, because there's no pain or death or suffering in this end, but that there is, you know, that there is a God that wipes away our tears, but it's also beautiful. You know, one of the things I find most repulsive as I was growing up as a Christian uh, was that uh, there were so many unimaginative attempts by groups of people to try and tell me and lay down for me what heaven is meant to look like. 
You know, just, just like how some people, you know, some of us here think that the ideal holiday getaway is meant to be restful and peaceful and tranquil on a beachfront, you know, where you get that easy uh, sip of a cold, cool drink and a dip in the pool wherever you want. You know, there's some of us here who think that's the worst kind of a holiday. You know, some of us here will want that it needs to be fast-paced, it needs to be with a bunch of friends, it needs to be packed schedules, go, 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 you know. You want new food every night, new tastes, you want a night out, uh, all the way up to the flight home. And I think subconsciously, we've absorbed a lot of what the world has taught us about eternity, about heaven. Now that the Christian heaven is a boring place up in the clouds and we line up in a military formation singing hymns, really old hymns as well, um, dressed in white robes. Now that's probably more the Simpsons or or the Philadelphia cream cheese ad um, than what the Bible actually depicts for us. Maybe it's our own doing. Because we've been ingrained with imagery on those tacky old pamphlets and brochures of, of green meadows uh, with streams and cuddly lions lying down next to us. Uh, and we're all chilling on a savannah like a group of gypsies um, in a zoo enclosure. <laughs> now, I, I don't know of anyone who would want to go to that kind of a place and do it forever. And I put it this way, imagine if you had an adolescent in your family right now, I know for some of you that's not hard to imagine, um, and you describe to them what eternity looks like, will they want it? You know, will they desire it? Will they be attracted to it? Um, An author that I recently read, Olga Togachuk, uh, Polish, uh, in her flight uh, novel called Flight, uh, it's a fascinating experimental novel about transience and impermanence, um, writes this, describing something is like using it. It destroys and you know, the colour wears off, the corners lose their definition, and in the end what's been described begins to fade, to disappear. This applies most of all to places. Enormous damage has been done to travel literature, by travel literature. A veritable scourge, an epidemic. Guidebooks have conclusively ruined the greater part of the planet. Published in editions numbering in the millions in many languages, they've debilitated places, pinning them down and naming them, blurring their contours. Even I, in my youthful novet, once took a shot at the description of places. But when I go back to those descriptions later, when I try to take a deep breath and allow their intense presence to choke me up all over again, when I try to listen in on their murmurings, I was always in for a shock. The truth is terrible. Describing is destroying. And I remember the days when we traveled without internet itinerary guides, Um, no TripAdvisor recommendation on the 10 things to see and the 10 things to do. You know, we, we travelled with a sense of mystery and discovery and we have to, rec- I think we have to recode our view of eternity with some of that. And I think it's very fascinating that unlike many world religions and uh, that perhaps tried too hard to paint a picture of what exactly it looks like in their version of eternity, um, that they end up totalising it for everyone. The Bible keeps it quite open. Um, Apart from some symbolic imagery and some parables that Jesus talks about, about great banquets and, you know, houses with many rooms, um, there's a lot of room for us to create and to imagine. Uh, And there's there's an ending. Doesn't mean that there is only one end, right? There's there's only one story. That's the beauty of the new heaven and a new earth for me. Um, It's filled with newness. See, I make everything new. 
is what God says. It's not boring or stale. You know, Christopher Wright in uh, Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative, says this about the biblical story. He says, it is, of course, not just a single narrative. You know, like a river with only one channel. It is rather a complex mixture of all kinds of smaller narratives, many of them rather self-contained with all kinds of other material embedded within them. The Bible does not have a carefully plotted single storyline, like, for example, a conventional novel. It's a sprawling collection of narratives. It is not an aggressively totalizing story that suppresses all the others, the accusation most postmodernism uh, postmodernism makes against all meta-narratives. Uh, another theologian, uh, Richard Balcom, a New Testament scholar, um, calls the biblical ending this. He calls it anticipated closure, but permanent narrative openness. Anticipated closure, but permanent narrative openness. There will be an ending The Bible points to a common goal shared universally. But there is not just one end, but many particular ends for local stories, individual stories, um, stories which do not take away from that universal story, but adds to it, complements it, and completes it. And he writes in his book, as the New Testament illustrates so profusely, the movement towards the universal is always from one particular to another. Even the great universal drama of Bible's final book, that's what we read, Revelation, you know, is accessible only through the particularities of seven churches of Asia. You know, we read in the first three chapters of Revelation stories about these seven churches. Um, their situation and their practice specified with such attention to the particular in the introduction to that book. You know, I think so many of us probably live like the video we watched before. We live and we work. You know, we build relationships, we make memories and experience new things, but only to give this present moment a bit of excitement, a bit of meaning. You know, and that might include the way we worship God. And it might include the way we engage in church, the way we interact and serve in our communities, our life groups. You know, we go through them like motions, but we don't see beyond the immediate, the imminent. You know, we, we find it lethargic. We can't, you know, it's lacking energy. We can't get into it. You look at others and feel, man, I wish I had a bit of that energy. You know, you feel like you're on the outside looking in and the people inside are having a way better time than you are. You know, there's always some part of you that's a little bit sad about something you can't quite put a finger on. You know, that secular existentialist story or that narrative tells us to live eternity now. You know, but when they say that, they don't mean eternity now. They just mean now, now. Right? Don't, don't wait for later. Do it now. Do everything that makes you happy now as soon as you can. You must bring eternity to the now because eternity is not real. And we're on a pretty tight schedule living this finite life. That might end any moment. So let's do everything to forget the fact that we don't have a real eternity. And I don't know about you, but it's selling me eternity as a lie. You know, eternity is just the future this temporal future. And I'm pretty sure I'll be anxious all the time living that way because I'll always be thinking about what I'm missing out on. 
And another travel analogy, it'll be like me saying, oh, I've traveled to Italy, but I still haven't been to Greece, Spain, France, Turkey. And man, I don't get to go to all those places this life because in the end, uh, I have only limited income and limited time. You know, then I'll get anxious because I'm not earning enough to fund my wanderlust. And I'll look at all you high income earners out there and I'll hate you and envy you. You know, and I definitely won't want to love that colleague at work who I see as a competition to the top. Eternity now, if you fake the eternity, is not a fun way to live. You know, I feel that's, that's me, you know, a lot of the time. Because I often think that I, maybe I'm just a melodramatic type four on the Enneagram, right? Uh, but maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe there's some, um, you know, that I've lost sight to the real, of the real eternity that the Bible talks about. And I too easily exchange it uh, for for a lie, you know, for really what is just functional atheism, functional atheism, that, that we live as if there is no eternity. And as C.S. Lewis makes that fascinating point about this dangerous and ultimately harmful way uh, to live. Uh, in the book Screwtape Letters, you know, there uh, he, he makes this parody of the devil, Wormwood, who's advising uh, a junior devil on this exact same thing. And he says to uh, the junior devil, um, in a word, the future, and this is the, the, the existentialist future, um, is of all things the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. But fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. Now, the real eternity now is when we truly grasp the attractiveness of the biblical ending and reject that cheap and tacky description of futures which people try to sell us without any imagination. And we just need to take hold of again that truth that the ending has reserved within it a unique part that only I, only you can provide. You know, God's story, however it might end in the grander scheme of things, is waiting for my touch, is waiting for your touch, your stroke, that next move. You know, once again, C.S. Lewis has a really good go at describing what it feels like when heaven and earth unite, when two realities come together to make that new reality. You know, in The Last Battle, which is the final book of uh, the Narnia series, you know, Narnia gets destroyed and, and, and the good you know, inhabitants of Narnia are led by Aslan, the, the, their king, who's also a lion. Uh, I swear it's where Disney get their Lion King Mufasa from, into a new countryside. Um, and, and here C.S. Lewis writes this. Uh, Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden at all, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and seas and mountains, but they were not strange. She knew them all. And I see, she said, this is still Narnia, and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below, just as it was more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. I see, world within world, Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. And then the book concludes by saying, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
You know, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia has only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now the biblical story tells us to live eternity now. It also does that. But when it says that, it means this present moment you're in is set within the context of a greater eternity and a greater eternal reality. And it gets better, like C.S. Lewis said, with each new chapter. You know, let's do everything not to forget that we don't have eternity, but precisely the opposite, to remember that we have eternity. And that's because eternity is real and you're already in it. You know, in that reality, we don't need to stress. We don't need to worry about what you're missing out on. You know, save it for later. Do what you can now. There's eternity to perfect. You know, Christ says, see, I make all things new. There's no need to have FOMO, you know, because we won't be missing out. You know, there's no need to see healthy competition as a nasty struggle. You know, there's space, time, and resources to spare in our present life to build not just ourselves, but others in community. And in the last few weeks, we've looked at the biblical meta-narrative, you know, why it is a better story. We started with the metaphysical statement, you know, about who we are, that we were created in the image of God for good, but goodness can only have an absolute meaning if it's eternal and enduring. We then had a historical statement about the human problem, why throughout history we fail and fail again, that we've been, because we've been spoiled by sin. Again, that is a problem because we can't take a spoiled nature with us into eternity. We had an ethical statement about what we must do, you know, that we were invited into a covenant to keep a relationship with God. That relationship is only genuine and mutual if we are also eternal beings. We have the Christ event that makes sense because it saves for all of history and all of eternity once and for all. We have a political statement about the communities we're entrusted to build and that only works if we're able to look beyond our own interests and we can only do that if we're able to see beyond our own FOMOs and the world is not just a finite timeline between now and future but between present and eternity. You know, it's eternity now every moment. In that sense, I think that the promise of a new heaven, a new earth, of a new reality where there's an ending but no end, you know, where there's a universal ending that is served by each and every individual ending is key. It's the key of that better story that makes sense of all the other aspects. You know, eternity is a part of our identity. It helps explain our history. It informs our ethics and our politics Eternity liberates us to be God's image bearer. It liberates us from the past to start afresh every time from the shackles of sin. Eternity liberates us from making an end of worldly futures, which the Bible calls idolatry. And it brings us back to our covenant with God. Eternity liberates us from serving only our own interests, but encourages us to encounter the other in community. Eternity is freedom. It's freedom to try. It's freedom to choose. It's freedom to fail and freedom to change. 
And one of the things COVID has shown and really made apparent for us, I think, is that our lives and our reality is fragile. Right, our world is ordered in a way that the wheels need to keep turning for life to be possible. We've found that out in the last 12 months. You know, you lock down a city and businesses fail. Masses of people are laid off and livelihoods are lost. You know, you lock down a few countries and man, whole industries and markets collapse. Right, the slightest correction in this world and jobs and homes are lost, families are broken. You know, we feel every moment in this world, the weight of necessity on our shoulders. And in a world of necessity, there is no room for freedom. You know, we just feel suffocated with no real hope. You know, COVID has shown that. You know, we can't rely on a worldly future. Like Albert Camus wrote in his book about the plague called The Plague, um, about quarantine and what that makes us feel, he says these really you know, profound words. We become hostile of the past, impatient of the present, and cheated of the future. And there's no sign that life will be returning to normal anytime soon. None of us can have any solid plans. Uh, All the more we need to catch hold, I think, of a future that's not finite but eternal. To free ourselves from that feeling of hostility, impatience and the sense of being cheated of the future in the time which we find ourselves in. You know, we finish up this morning, maybe there are some of us who just need to breathe that fresh air again, you know, to reimagine eternity, you know, put it back in our perspective in the lives that we live, to take hold of a freedom that is only possible if we enter into the biblical story, that better story, You know, maybe it's tiredness. Maybe that's what you're feeling. You're lethargic. You're fatigued. Always looking to secure the future in this fragile reality. You know, but not quite believing with your heart that there is an eternity beyond that. You know, one that not only where there's no more pain and suffering and there are things of the past, but it's filled with beauty and it's eternally new. You know, maybe we're fearful of losing what we've saved or built and that makes you feel less generous and compassionate. You know, maybe it's a, you're a bit consumed by some ambition that's making you less kind and supportive. Or maybe some other cheap and tacky description the world tries to sell us about the future is weighing in on you with a greed and lust for something you know is not quite right. Now, this morning, God invites us into a better story with an eternity that gets better and better as we go in. You know, time is not the enemy anymore. You know, we can have the courage to let go. Uh, We can be free. It's true that God's eternity, there's no more need for tears or pain. There's time enough to heal. There's time enough to learn. There's time to let go. And there's time to pick things back up again if we want it to in that eternity. And as Cirque's told me this morning that the song uh, is going to close us in and respond to is uh, 10,000 places, uh, sorry, 10,000 reasons. And I'm just reminded that um, eternity is, there's not just one reason for it. There's not just one reason. There's 10,000 reasons for us to want the, the biblical eternity. It's almost like that poem that Christ plays in 10,000 places. You know, each one of us is, is living a piece of that eternity right now. You know, it's not up there in the clouds. 
got nothing to do with me until I die. Eternity, I think, looks less like the cloud, but more like this church we're in right now. You know, eternity looks more like your family home. And we just need to remember that, that this present that we're in, we're already making up eternity to come. Hey, why don't we stand? sing our 10,000 reasons and there is great joy that we find we've just heard from Kevin I just wonder in this place as we sing let your imagination go to God and just allow your heart to be lifted afresh just as as, uh, as we sing this song let's, uh, let's find our voice and worship Him we hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.